You're at RT Podcast. We're about to hear a reading from Gustav Steinbrecht's Gymnasium of the Horse, provided by Classical Audio Horsebooks and Gold Leaf Farms. Here we go. Section A, The Rider's Seat and Aids, Part 1, The Seat. Before we turn to the actual object of this book, the working of the horse, it is necessary for us to agree on the means that we have available to accomplish this task. I do not refer to the external tools which we use during our work, the bridle, saddle, spurs, whip, lunge line, pillars. These will not be covered in separate chapters, but will be mentioned only occasionally. I mean, rather, the use that man can make of his own body for the purpose of working the horse. This use of his limbs will be appropriate and successful only if it is based in every respect on a detailed understanding of the nature of the horse and on a precise knowledge of its anatomy. Understood in this way, the means for working the horse are mainly the appropriate natural seat on the horse and then, as a result of such a seat, the correct use of the limbs to influence the horse. It cannot, of course, be my intention to repeat the generally known rules for the rider's seat. Instead, I merely want to briefly illuminate those points which I think are essential for the seat as a means for dressage training. A deep-rooted prejudice has established a so-called normal seat for the rider, that is, a body position to be presented by the mounted rider once and for all. I believe the fact that this normal seat is demonstrated to the student right at the beginning and is practiced with great discipline is the main reason why many young people are frightened away from the arena and from the systematic study of the art of riding. Instead, they prefer the unrestrained and exclusive riding of hunts and steeplechases. Although with suitable instruction, they might have become higher-level dressage riders. A normal seat on the horse, even if in the majority of cases this means only a posture that is correct, does not exist at all because the rider sits the horse correctly only if his center of gravity or rather the line of the center of gravity of his body, coincides with that of the horse. Only then is he in complete harmony with his horse, and only then does he become one with it. Since, however, the center of gravity of the horse can be displaced in various ways, depending on its changing position and carriage, the rider's position must change accordingly every time. It is the privilege of the fine, well-educated rider to feel at once where the horse's center of gravity lies, to bring himself into harmony with it, and to then displace the horse's center of gravity so that the horse will carry itself in such a way that it produces the rider's beautiful, light, and unrestrained seat. There are but a few riders of whom one can say that the horse increases in value 100% when they are in the saddle. If the rider cannot adjust his position according to that of the horse, 
or is unable to correctly shape the horse's carriage according to his own, the result will always be a caricature. The Englishman on his horse, with loose reins, short stirrups, and a hunched back, is not a beautiful sight, yet he is a natural one and cannot therefore be called a caricature. The wretched Sunday rider, however, with his stretched-out legs, hollow back, and arms tied against his body, on his tired nag, is the most ridiculous side in the world, and thus the object of much derision. The so-called normal seat becomes a beautiful and elegant seat only if the horse, after having been put into the correct balance, puts its rider into this seat itself. Such a picture is then truly one of harmony, and no man will appear more to advantage anywhere than if he can present himself on his horse in such a way. Whoever understands that beauty and lightness of seat do not depend only on the posture of the rider, but just as much on the correct carriage and the regular gaits of the horse, will find it quite natural that I recommend directing the student as soon as he has become somewhat secure, to work on his horse's carriage, although this might once in a while occur at the expense of his normal position. For the beginning rider, the most important teacher of a correct seat must always be the horse. A good seat, natural, supple, soft, has enormous importance not only for the rider in general, but especially for the rider who later on wishes to train a horse. This importance will be encountered again and again in every chapter of this book. There can be nothing more wrong than to put the student on a worn-out and disabled, bent-out-of-shape and difficult nag. To force him on this caricature of a riding horse into this so-called normal seat and then demand that, with this type of gymnastics, he should begin to develop a love for, much less a feeling for, the horse. The old masters put their students on completely trained dressage horses, initially between the pillars, without stirrups or reins. No other instruction was required than to sit down uninhibitedly the way it felt good, to spread the seat bones well, and to let the legs hang down naturally. Then, in the orderly, cadenced movements of the piaf, the student began to feel the horse so that a transition could be made to the passade and to leaps in which the rider then learned to maintain his seat by softly following the movements of the horse. Thus prepared, the student was then put on the lunge line, also on a dressage horse, and again without stirrups or reins. He practiced on a moving horse, that which he had learned previously in place between the pillars, to softly follow all movements of the horse, or in other words, to be in balance, which is much more the basis for a good and secure seat than the so highly touted firm grip of the legs. With such schooling, including occasional brief reminders by the instructor, the beautiful lines of the seat would come quite naturally. 
The student is able to enjoy his work right from the start, giving him a foundation for his whole life, for that which is most important in riding, and particularly in schooling horses. The fine feel for the horse. It needs no explanation that training recruits this way is hardly possible in the Army. But the young person who wants to study the art of riding in an expert manner should not be trained in any other way. If one hears the general complaint today that we no longer have any good trainers to whom we can entrust a young horse without worry, that is the natural result of the fact that there no longer exist any academic riding schools where dressage horses are trained to later become the true teachers of the riding student. When the student has learned the natural seat on the normally trained horse, it will be necessary to teach him, as well, the deviations from this seat as required for a horse that is green or only lightly schooled. For this purpose, he should also occasionally ride such horses, and it should be pointed out to him how he can remain in harmony with them as well by correctly distributing his weight, that is, how he can retain his balance while always being able to grip with his legs to secure his seat during particularly rough and violent movements. The main rule for this balanced seat, which is based on the correct displacement of the center of gravity, is that the rider's straight spine must always be perpendicular to that of the horse. That is, it must form two right angles with it. According to this principle, we see the race rider lean far forward with his upper body so as to increase the speed of his mount, whereas, if his body were leaning back, or even in an upright position, he would not be able to follow the movements of the horse. We also see the well-trained military horse, under its upright rider, perform the most intricate turns and movements, always in regular gaits, with a lightness, willingness, and endurance, which will inevitably arouse interest in the layman for such a beautiful and seemingly easy art. In this position of the horse, its center of gravity falls approximately in the middle between forehand and hindquarters, and its spine is horizontal, thus the vertical position of the rider. Finally, we see the dressage horse, with its hind legs put well under, its haunches bent, and its croup lowered, performing its graceful yet powerful movements on and above the ground. The rider guides it with a slightly reclining upper body and with a security and accuracy, as if the horse's four legs were his own. In these movements, the horse's center of gravity is vertically above its hindquarters, and its spine is sloped downward from front to back. See and note one. By observing the above-mentioned principle regarding the coincidence, or, more correctly, precise vertical congruence of the centers of gravity of man and horse, the rider can make it infinitely easier for the horse to carry his weight, not directly, but in effect. 
That is the reason why horses not only perform twice as well under a good rider as under a poor one, but also why they remain useful many years longer, although the poor rider perhaps puts less weight in the saddle. It is also the reason why any dead weight is such an impediment to movement and is therefore avoided as much as possible in the racehorse. The same principle explains how the equilibrist, standing still, can balance two or even three men of his own size and weight, and can even move under their enormous weight. In their lifeless state, even one of these men would perhaps be a heavy load for him. If then, as we have seen, the rider's seat is dependent mainly on the carriage of the horse, and is correct only if the rider unequivocally accommodates himself to this carriage. There does exist, of course, a significant influence on his outline, and that is the saddle which serves as his support. The stiff, stereotypical, so-called normal seat, the shape of which I may assume to be known to the reader of this book, had its origin in a time in which saddles very much facilitated an erect carriage of the body by their padded seats, high back rests, and thick knee rolls, so that on the well-trained dressage horses of that time, the rider's position could easily appear natural and graceful. In our cavalry, this is also the prescribed seat and can be practiced as such since it is practically evoked by the Hungarian or stock saddle. Once, however, the stock saddle has been replaced in the army by a saddle that comes closer to the shape of the English saddle, the present normal seat will have to be relinquished, and this will be a great advantage for riding purposes and even more for working a horse. The stock saddle is not of advantage for working a horse, since it permits only a crotch seat and more or less prevents the finer aids of balance and weight distribution from becoming effective. Moreover, its hollow position on the horse's back removes the rider too far from the horse. Therefore, all non-commissioned officers should be schooled on saddles similar to the English saddle until they attain a highly perfected, balanced seat, and then they should be asked to train young horses. They would then become much better trainers for these young horses and better teachers for their troops, and would be able to serve 10 to 15 years longer with healthy and agile bodies. See and note two. Just as many other exercises, if done regularly and appropriately, serve to keep a man's limbs supple, agile, and strong, riding as the most perfect of all physical exercises must also serve this purpose, and does so, as experience has shown, in those cases where it is done correctly. If, therefore, professional riders or people of another profession requiring much and extended riding seem to be stiff and worn out before their time, this is either the result of other adverse influences or of a forced, unnatural seat that has needlessly worn away their strength. 
with correct natural balance, one can spend the greater portion of one's life on a horse and still appear youthful and fresh into an advanced age. A cramped, stiff seat must have a much more disadvantageous effect on the rider's body, since our present-day English saddles do not make it the least bit easier for such a rider. Except for the seat and stirrups, such a saddle does not provide a comfortable support for the rider. The always practical Englishman has gradually evolved this saddle from the heavy German dressage saddle, not only to make it easier for his horses during strenuous competitive rides and hunts, but also to be immediately free of the saddle in case of a fall. He knows that under such conditions, bone fractures and other injuries are caused more often from being crushed by the horse than from contact with the ground. While the English saddle has advantages for hunting and steeplechase riding as well as for military and dressage riding, its usefulness is augmented in the latter discipline in that it facilitates, even demands, a finely balanced seat from the rider and thus, although making the task more difficult for him, causes the rider to endeavor to advance the art to a higher degree of perfection. While the old masters, on their dressage saddles, knew how to advance the art of riding to a high level under greater expenditures of time and strength on the part of the horse and rider, we, if we reach that same level with our lighter, more agile, and nobler horses, will have produced a more perfect art, since we have attained this goal with nothing but simple, natural means. Aware of the danger that I might bore the reader, I continue to refer to the fact that everything stiff and forced in the rider's position must be avoided, and that the rider must understand what is necessary for a correct position, and why. A back that is braced too much curves the spine forward, just as a back that is relaxed too much curves it toward the rear and has the same disadvantages only in the opposite direction. For some students, it is very difficult to find the middle ground between these two extremes, but almost everything else depends on it. The spine is like the trunk from which all limbs branch out and to which all organs are attached. The activity of the organs and the forcefulness of the limbs must also be a function of the position of this trunk. When the student is doing seat exercises, both extremes should once in a while be produced intentionally in order to make him experience the feeling of the natural, straight position. This will also be of great help to him when later, while training his horse in dressage, he will often require these two extreme positions as aids to bring his center of gravity into coincidence with that of his horse. Pulling back the shoulders is necessary, not only to free the chest cavity so that the precious organs in it are not constricted, but also to give the upper arms their quiet, natural, straight-down position and a secure support from the small of the back. However, pulling the shoulders up should be avoided, 
since that not only restricts the freedom of the arms, but would also impart a somewhat forced appearance to the entire upper body. Next to the correct position of the spine, the flat position of the thigh is the major point in the entire theme of the correct seat. The correct position of this limb produces steadiness of the hips, broadens the seat area, and secures the rider's position by permitting him to close his legs in cases where balance alone might be insufficient, without in any way interfering with the horse. Although the lower legs are less important for a correct seat, they are the main source of the driving aids and the correct position of the stirrups. See and note 3. Since for this purpose the lower legs must be agile and elastic in the ankle joints, it is quite wrong to force the student to acquire the habit of carrying the lower legs in a stiff and immobile way by making him stretch the knee joints and raise his toes excessively. Stiff lower legs will, later on, neither hold the stirrups correctly on the feet nor enable the rider to give correct aids with calves and spurs. The only reason for raising the toes is to put the heels down so that the still inexperienced student will not worry his horse by inadvertently touching it with the spurs. As soon as the rider's position is secure, with proper balance and closing of the thighs, he can let his lower legs hang down quite softly and naturally. In order to be able to resist, or rather counteract, the strong influences exerted on his seat by the horse's movements, the rider must be flexible in the hips and be able to easily and nimbly turn his upper body from the hips. To attain such a skill, the student should frequently be made to intentionally lose his balance toward one side or the other during seat exercises without stirrups, and then, when too much of his weight hangs toward that side, regain the correct seat merely by swinging his hips without any support from hands or legs. At this point, I would like to refer to a brochure by Count Denis Sichenyi, who in the correct realization of the importance of, and the basic requirements for, a natural balanced seat, likewise recommends doing seat exercises on the lunge without stirrups or reins. He even suggests playing ball in this position. This will certainly produce more enthusiastic and sensitive riders than will forcing them into the stiff, normal seat. The fine arts produce true beauty only if they stay within the confines of nature. Any digression beyond these boundaries is punished by distortions and caricatures, and although fashion sometimes sees beauty in such aberrations, they have nothing in common with true art. I close this important chapter by asking each writer who truly wants to earn this title to let each of his limbs find its resting point, and thus steadiness, by letting it hang under its own weight, and to put no force or stiffness in his overall posture. Any such effort would require the expenditure of forces, and thus would not only be very tiring, 
but would also rob the limbs of their elasticity and agility and have an inhibiting influence on the freedom of movement of the horse. The rider should act artificially in the form of an exertion of force only if the aids require it. As soon as the horse has accepted these aids, the rider should return to the rest position. Gymnasium des Pferdes, or Gymnasium of the Horse, written from Classical Audio, Horse Book, and Global Leaf Horse Farms, Alachua, Florida, zur Verfügung gestellt. Vielen Dank an Classical Audio Horse Books, dass Sie uns dieses Buch heute vorlesen. Das sind sehr gute Anmerkungen, die wir uns alle eindreschen sollten. Vielen Dank. Uh...